Greg Dutcher sitting across from me. Greg, how you doing tonight? Doing great. I am excited about this one tonight, Nathan. Got this is going to be good. Got our, our Bibles open here, Romans 7, and uh, we're, we're going to spend some great time with a great guest. Yep. Uh, so I couldn't be more excited. Yep. And we're going to introduce that guest or reintroduce that guest, I should say, in just a moment. But first, we want to introduce our other guest, yes. uh, Sean Nolan, joining us. Sean, how are you? I'm well. Thanks for asking. Sean, um, we'd like to uh, let everyone just kind of give a little presentation about themselves to the audience out there so people know who they are and can kind of get familiar with them just in case we decide we're going to have you on again. And if not, when we make fun of you, they'll know who we're referencing. Yes. Um, It's very important when we embarrass you. So go ahead and just uh, tell everybody out there a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I serve as the family life pastor here at Christ Fellowship Church. Uh, Came down here in September with my wife and uh, two kids. We have Knox, who's a little over two, and Hazel just turned six months. And uh, previously, uh, we served at a church up in upstate New York and in Troy, where I did similar ministry to youth and families up there and uh, taught at a a classical school teaching hermeneutics for a little while and kind of followed the Lord down here. And we're excited to be here and think this is where he wants us. Sean's son, if you heard him, he said his name is Knox. And that is K-N-O-X. Kid as cute as can be, and I bet some of our listeners can guess why he named his son Knox. And it's not after the fort. <laughs> so, uh, now, I, there's little Knox. He probably has no idea John Knox yet. Give me Scotland, else I die, all that kind of stuff. No, but we used to live very close to a street called New Scotland. Yeah. I don't want to say I thwarted God's plan, but I was hoping someday he'd grow up and say, give me New Scotland and I'll die. <laughs> That's good, dude. What That's a name, good. too, dude. Knox Nolan. I do want to let our listeners know um, he is not related to uh, Christopher Nolan, which would be awesome if it were true. But it's so, not true. So you're only part cool. That's right. I mean, he got a great name, but he That's can't right. he can't cash in on it with the street credit. That's right. And also uh, joining us again, we have Dr. Tom Schreiner. Dr. Schreiner, how are you today? I'm doing well, really well. Um, Great to be here. For those of you who don't remember, we had Dr. Schreiner on with Steve Hartland back in, um, I think it was uh, October, late October, early November, somewhere in there, um, just talking about a a bunch of different New Testament subjects. Um, And today we're going to be focusing specifically on Romans 7. Um, So we want to give everyone an opportunity. Um, Obviously, if you're driving, listening to this in the car, you don't want to do this. But if you listen to these at home, we want to give you the opportunity to go ahead and grab your Bibles and listen to and. uh, Turn to Romans chapter 7 as we uh, discuss things today. But first, um, Dr. Schreiner, just go ahead and refresh our audience a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. Uh, I teach uh, New Testament at the Southern Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. I've been there since 1997. Before that, I taught at Bethel uh, Seminary in Minnesota. And before that, I taught at Azusa Pacific. Um, I've been, uh, I've been, I was the preaching pastor at Clifton Baptist for 17 years. I actually just stepped down January 1st, but I'm still an elder, mm. still, still involved, but I'm not the preaching pastor now. Huh. And we have, I'm married, four kids and most important, seven grandkids. Wow. So, That's wow. great. I, I have to ask, do you, do you miss, I mean, it's only been a month and a half or so at this point, Dr. Schreiner, but do you miss the regularity of preaching? Uh, well, I'm, I don't, you know, we were, we were splitting, uh, the, the guy who took over for me, uh, John Kimball, John and I have been splitting since 2008, 2010. Okay. So, so I wasn't preaching every week anyway, so it isn't quite as striking. 
I would really miss it if I wasn't going to do it at all. But I'm going out and speaking a fair bit. So, uh, you know, my focus is still on the local church. I'm teaching a Sunday school class. I want to mainly be there. Yes. But but I am going out a little bit more and speaking a bit more. So. So, yeah, it'd be it'd be difficult if I weren't doing it at all. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So. Yeah, and uh, offline, you told us that you're uh, doing a revised edition of uh, Romans, um, the commentary, um, just to make that clear. Right. Not not <laughs> he, he's not um, no, writing not, yeah, canonical not scripture. Right. <laughs> That's a um, oh, that was good. And you said you believe that's going to release um, in 2018, correct? Yeah, Lord willing, it'll be out from Baker in 2018. So the first edition was 1998. That's at least hard for me to believe that was 20 years ago. Wow. So, you know, the way the way things are, uh, 20 years of research, and I, I've been I've been reading a lot that's come out in the last 20 years, and so I've uh, integrated that into my commentary you know major major commentaries have come out since then uh, uh robert jewett uh nt wright row one uh colin cruz arlen holtgren michael bird's just written one so uh, and then and then monographs and articles so it's amazing how much is written on Romans. Wow, still, yes, yes. And, I, I, you know, I'm glad that uh, that came up before we get into our Romans 7 conversation. Mm-hmm. Do you, um, might be a lame question, but I'll ask it since I already began. Do you have a favorite commentary on Romans that has been of most benefit to you, Dr. Schreiner? Yeah, I'd, I'd say Doug Moo's commentary yes. is, uh, is, is, is the one that's helped me the most as I've, uh, as I've worked through Romans. I, 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 Doug is extremely careful, judicious, fair. Um, that, well, he's a great commentator. Anything Moo writes, um, I, I get. Agreed, agreed. And just, yeah. just so our audience knows, uh, prior to this uh, going live or whatever we call it, recording, uh, you know, uh, we were learning that uh, Dr. Schreiner's uh, new commentary is going to come out in 2018. And I said I benefited so much from his. Uh, when I preached it back in 06 through 08. And he said, well, if you preach again, be sure to get the new commentary. (laughs) (laughs) Tongue in cheek, of course. But Dr. Schreiner, I want to say I will. uh, Because uh, I I would love to get that updated version of it. And yours and uh, uh, Doug Moo's was great. You know, on a a popular level, um, John Stott's I liked a great deal. Um, You know, I could mine his for some terrific quotes and, you know, that sort of thing when, uh, when preaching. So I'm... I'm excited. I always tell our congregation that uh, when I'm done a series, I feel like I'm saying goodbye to friends. Um, and many of those friends are the commentators that I've been reading throughout that series. So uh, it's nice to actually talk to one of those friends tonight. So again, yeah, thank you for St- being here. Stott is great. Stott is great. And also, uh, Doug is revising his Romans as well. Oh, interesting. So interesting. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what schedule he's on, but I, I think he. I think he's working on it right now as well. I don't. Wow. Uh, so, we we sh- his might even come out a little bit before mine. Depends on how hmm. how he's doing. Wow. So, hmm. note to self, Nathan: get our trustees to bulk up the. the I know, the, right? <laughs> the book budget. I know. Uh, <laughs> so good. Got to get on them. Yes. Um, before we start, Doctor Schreiner, we do want to dive right in. But I want to. I wanted to ask you as you're going through this commentary: is there any 
any major significant revision that you can think of now um, that you've done um, since you wrote the first one 20 years ago? Yeah, yeah. I'd say, well, uh, I, I always took, I mean, this is a little bit technical, but I've always taken the verb justified dikaio as forensic. Mm-hmm. But in my first edition of the commentary, I took righteousness of God, dikaio sune theu. I took that as uh, not being forensic, and I changed my mind on that. I, Interesting. And um, amongst others, I mean, uh, Moo's recent work has uh, informed that, and and now most recently, I'd already changed my mind on this, but most recently there's a major dissertation out by Lee Irons okay. on the right, righteousness of God, which I think I think demonstrates that that's the, the, the noun phrase is forensic as well. So that's in there, and uh, you know, a really tough issue is two fourteen and fifteen. Whether that's speaking of believers or not, and I've uh, I've I've argued now over against my first edition that it is talking about believers. Interesting. And and there I was influenced by uh, Ardell Kennedy's article and Simon Gathercole. And then I just have a little wrinkle that's different. It doesn't change my reading of the passage, but I have a little wrinkle that's different on Romans 5. I wrote an article for a book on on Adam on Romans 5, so I have a little wrinkle that's different there. And then and then Romans 7, what we're going to talk about tonight. Interesting. It isn't, there's a difference there in that I'm more explicitly seeing it as pre-Christian. So those are, I think those are the four places where i've made you know little things along the way sure those, sure. Are, those are the four biggest things excellent wow. excellent well I, I can't wait to talk about the one for sure. yeah well we're gonna we're gonna dive right in and so in my um in my first question to you dr schreiner we'll actually get to what we're going to be talking about tonight for our um, audience. So recently, the Gospel Coalition featured a point-counterpoint series of articles on Romans 7. Uh, you argued that Romans 7 is not about the Christian struggle with sin, but the picture of an unbeliever sold under sin. Uh, John Piper defended the other view. I'm just curious, have the two of you ever talked about this? Well, you know, when first of all, when, when the Gospel Coalition asked me to do that, um, they didn't know my view. Mm, they th- huh. and and I, I think they thought I was going to write that it was Christian. So, um, but I don't. Uh, I didn't think anything of it. I just wrote up what I thought and sent it to them. Wow! And then then they asked Piper uh, to contribute after they saw what I wrote because they thought, oh well, we want we want the other side on this. And they also, I don't know if you saw it, they also included an article that represented Martin Lloyd Jones's view of the passage. So they had, yes. they had the three three different views. But John, you know, John was my pastor for 11 years in Minnesota. Yes. So I know John well. Uh, John had a massive influence on me as as my pastor and preacher. And yes, I was struggling through Romans 7. I've gone I've gone back and forth actually over the years some and so I told him when I was in Minnesota one time I was leaning towards the pre-Christian view, and he he immediately said to me, oh, uh, "Tom, uh, <laughs> I, de- I I desire, you know, I uh, let's see, let me get the verse exactly right, seven twenty-three, right? right. Uh, I want I want to quote it because he said, um, no, twenty-two. For I delight in the law of God in the inner man. Yes. So." 
that that that's how he responded to me. He just responded to me by giving me that verse. So. Oh. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Yes, yes. Well, I um, have to say, I mean, you know, reading his, I noticed that he's mentioning your view, uh, showing, you know, obviously a deference to it, respect to it, even though he doesn't take the same view. But that makes sense. His was actually... Uh, my sense was his was written more in response to yours. Is that correct? Yeah, I think they, when they saw what I had written, then they asked him to write. But yeah, John, I mean, John and I are good friends. I have the utmost respect for him. He was really nice about my view. And yeah. I mean, obviously, it's not an easy question. I think John could, John could certainly be right on that, and I could be wrong. I, I freely acknowledge that. I'm, but I, I, I honestly, though, I feel more persuaded um that it's pre-christian than i have any time previously in my life interesting so. um before we get into some other questions if you're all right with this greg i'd like um dr schreiner to go up and just set up his basic argument first of course um so that way we can understand that as listeners um so dr schreiner if you could just um exposit for us a little bit romans 7 why you believe um in in certain points that um this is Paul's pre-conversion experience. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I would say that I think what Paul's doing in this argument, I think in, during Paul's ministry, Jewish opponents would say to Paul, your gospel is deficient because uh, what we need to be godly is we need the law. Mm-hmm. And and I think Paul's showing – so his larger point in Romans 7 is the law itself is not the answer uh, to human holiness. In fact, it's the problem. Yes. It's, it's the problem not because of the law itself but because of sin. Sin is so powerful. It's, it's, uh, it's like the sun, right, pulling that smaller planet, the law, into its orbit. So I think, I think that's his larger ar- argument. The law – the law can't transform us. Then, um, what's the evidence that it's that he's speaking in pre-Christian terms? I'm thinking of Romans seven verses seven through twenty-five, and I think one of the keys here is the structure of the passage. So, Romans chapter seven verse five speaks of while we were in the flesh, which is clearly designating pre-Christian life. The flesh refers to the unregenerate person, the old Adam, who we were before we were saved. The, 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 our sinful passions, which were aroused or energized by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. And the death there, I think, is spiritual death, physical death too, but they're not separated. Mm-hmm. So clearly he's saying when we were unregenerate, uh, our sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, killed us. In contrast, verse 6, now that we're released from the law, we've died to that which held us captive, so we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the letter. So 7, 6 is clearly talking about when we're regenerate. So my argument is that verses 7 through 25 of chapter 7 Unpack verse five. Yes. What it, what it's like to be in the flesh, and and sin takes the law into its orbit and produces death. Chapter eight, verse one and following, tells us what matches chapter seven, verse six. 
now that we're released from the law and we're in we're in the spirit, uh, we we live in a new way. So it's it's very clear chapter in chapter seven verses seven through twenty five. He never mentions the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. but in chapter eight and following, there are many references to the Spirit, as everybody knows. And and then when we actually look at the specific argument. He, he sets it up with questions, right? Chapter 7, verse 5. What then shall we say? Is the law sin? That's verse 7. No. And then he explains that in verses 7 through 12. The law is holy and righteous and good. But then chapter 7, verse 13, and this is where it's very controversial. But the question is really important. Did that which is good, the law, bring death to me? But the death is spiritual death, right? No, it was sin, it was sin using what is good, the law, that brought death. And then I think it's very important that verse 14 starts with a four. So verse 14 through 25 explains how the law brings death, how the law, how the law, and that's spiritual death. So I think, I think right off, the structural argument is huge to me. And I, and I didn't see that answered, I don't think, very convincingly by the others who participated. The structure of the passage tells us, I think, right off that he's speaking of pre-Christian experience. Then, then uh, an, another huge argument for me is what he says about the person, the I, in verses 14 through 25. He says, um, either Nathan or Greg, I forget which one said this, but in verse 14, he says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Mm-hmm. So that, that language of being sold under sin means an utterly captive to sin. And that's verified by chapter 7, verse 23. I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So I think that's a contradiction to chapter 6 and chapter 8. Chapter 6 says that believers who've uh, been baptized in the Christ are no longer slaves of sin, mm-hmm. that, we're, that we're liberated and freed from the power of sin. The dominion and tyranny of sin has ended for us. That doesn't mean we're sinless. Mm-hmm. It means the tyranny, the mastery of sin has ended. Chapter Romans chapter 8, verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. So I, I think in chapter seven, and this is where I think this is what trips people up. Yes, we all sin as Christians. Yes, we struggle every day. But I think Paul's talking in Romans seven about total, complete subjugation to sin. Mm-hmm. And, and that, so, so at the end of the day, and I think John Piper references, I, I don't think John Piper's definition of the Christian life, or or understanding of the Christian life, I should say, and my understanding, I don't think they're very different, Mm -hmm. but but we do differ on this passage. (laughs) So I think many Christians, they read Romans 7, I read Romans 7, and I say I still struggle with sin daily, but I I think Paul's saying something different from that here in the context, and that's the key. Is he talking about total defeat? Because I would argue, and I think he is, no Christian— no Christian suffers total defeat. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're suffering total defeat, you're not a Christian. Right. Right. 
Yeah, the, thank you, Dr. Schreiner. Very helpful. And uh, this is almost a dangerous podcast for me because I told these guys before we went on tonight, man, am I going to have to preach a retraction of what I did a few years ago? But we'll 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 get to that because you're you're making some very very compelling points and. Uh, sort of getting my mind wrapped back up into this is, is good. An obvious question that, that many people ask, um, and I think in the Gospel Coalition article it was uh, aimed to be so brief uh, that you might not have addressed it, and if you did, forgive me. But naturally people will, will ask, and I hear this all the time, well, why is Paul speaking in the present tense? He doesn't say, I was this way, or you know, the I of Romans 7, uh, 7 through 25 is not an eye of the past, but seems to be an eye of the present. So isn't he naturally describing his present tense struggle as a Christian? What what would you say to that about the uh, yeah, tenses? That, I mean, that's a great question. And uh, that is one of the key arguments that set forth for this being Christian experience. Oh, well, I, w- I would say a couple things. First of all, it is recognized um, in, in recent study in Greek grammar, it's recognized that present tense or aorist tense, whatever we're talking about, do not necessarily signify present time mm-hmm. or for the aorist tense past time. Mm-hmm. So, so we can't we can't just conclude because it's present tense, it's it's uh, it's present time, because the, the the focus in Greek verbs is not temporal but aspectual. It's the kind of action. Mm-hmm. Now. Now, of course, so, you know, there's many people who are saying this these days, and I think they're right. But it's still, it could designate present time. We still have to ask, why is the present tense used? And I, and I would say a couple things here, and I, and I think it's interesting. First of all, the present tense verb that's used often is a me. Uh, I am, yes. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and I think Paul uses the present tense because he's focusing on the state or the condition mm-hmm. of the person. So in other words, I don't think present tense denotes present time. I think Paul wants to focus on the spiritual condition of the person under the flesh, in the, in the flesh. And using the present tense brings vividness. And uh, it, it reminds the readers of, of who they are in Adam. So, um, I, I just think it's just it's it's going too far to argue from the present tense that it's de- designating present time. Yes, good, good, uh, good answer, helpful one. Is, is there a sense, uh, Doctor Schreiner, that the way I've always had this preached to me, and frankly, I've preached it, is that the the man I won't even say Paul, the man in Romans seven, is a man who has a deep abiding sense of distress, inner conflict. Um, is that something you would necessarily agree with within the context of your framework, or do you think something different's going on? No, I think I think that's right. I, I think I mean wretched man that I am. Right. I think that there's clearly a sense of uh, of distress going on there, and uh, I think Paul is describing. I, I I actually agree. I mean, it's a complex issue. I actually agree with Stephen Chester, who says that Paul is writing this as a Christian and he's looking back and analyzing his pre-Christian life. 
He's looking back and analyzing it retrospectively. Yes. So I, I don't think we see exactly a transcript of what Paul was thinking, particularly when he was a believe, uh, unbeliever. Yes. But it's a retrospective vision back at, at his uh, pre-Christian experience. So that, that, that's how I take it. Interesting. That, that's very helpful to me, Doctor, because I uh, have always heard one of the arguments against the pre-conversion view that's been used is, uh, you know, don't believe the pre-conversion view because, uh, you know, Paul thought things were peaches and cream when he was a Pharisee. Uh, he had no sense of inner conflict. You're saying that that may be true, but in Christian hindsight, as he would look back on his state as an unbeliever, he's in essence saying, "Wow, what a mess I was." Um, yeah, yeah. And but I'd add, I'd add something else. I think you know the 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 idea that Paul, you know, is peaches and cream, as you put it. I think we have to be careful because that's mainly derived from Philippians 3, 6. He was blameless regarding the law. Yes. Or, or Galatians 1, that he was out doing his contemporaries. But I, but I, th- I don't think those arguments are that strong for, for uh, one reason in particular, and that is I think in Philippians 3, 6 – um, or maybe I could say a couple things. Blameless doesn't mean sinless, mm-hmm. and, it, and no, no Jew thought they were sinless. I mean, we can read First Kings eight forty six. I think it's Proverbs twenty, verse nine, Ecclesiastes seven, near the end of the chapter, verses twenty eight. Every, every, every Jew would acknowledge or knew their Bible that they sinned. Mm-hmm. So blameless. Blameless meant, though, that Paul was extraordinarily righteous and he offered sacrifices when he sinned quickly. But also, I think Paul's focus is is on his outward behavior. That Paul didn't, you know, you couldn't look at Paul's life and say, you know, you're a murderer, you're an adulterer, you're, you, you don't honor your parents. But remember in chapter 7, he's talking about covenant. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't contradict I don't think it contradicts Philippians 3 at all, even even if it's not retrospective, I'd say. I don't think it contradicts Philippians 3. Interesting. Because, you know, it's one thing. It's one thing to say, you know, externally I'm doing well. It's another thing to say, but do I have desires in me that are contrary to the will of God, mm-hmm. that I'm not fully conquering? I mean, the Tenth Commandment, the Tenth Commandment zeroes in on desires. So, yeah, I think Paul could say, look— it, I'm I'm blameless externally. I I'm keeping God's commands, but it doesn't mean sinless. And we get a different a different window on I think Paul's pre-Christian experience in Romans seven, which I think is totally compatible. It's it's looking at a different dimension. Yes, uh, of his experience. It's looking at it more psychologically and experientially. And I think in Philippians three and Galatians one, he's saying, look look you opponents if. I, I, I match up with any of you in terms of the life I lived, which is true. That's true, too. Both are true. Yes, yes. I um, Guys, just want to tell you guys that are in the studio with me, uh, do you see why I didn't want to debate Dr. Schreiner? On this? <laughs> just discuss it with him. There were some people asking, oh, so are you going to debate Dr. Schreiner? Said, no, I'm not, a, I'm not a complete fool. Uh, I, we, we, we want to pick your brain. This is, this is great. I don't want to... I'm happy to, I'm happy to, if you disagree with me, don't worry about it. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I'm, I'm learning a lot in this. I, I really am. And I'm uh, taking some notes as we go. I don't want to ball hog everything, guys. Sean, I think you had some questions as well, didn't you? I do. It's going to kind of shift gears a little bit just because. Well, that's fine. Can, um, you, can, uh, can, can you keep up with a gear shift here, uh, Dr. Yeah, Schreiner? Great. I'm fine. I'm Good. fine. Whatever I, you guys 
I'm happy with whatever you want to do. Great. I'm just going to push you one chapter ahead. So um, since you see the picture of total defeat in Romans 7, could you then go on to explain how Romans 8, in your view, is such a wonderful and liberating section since it is describing the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian? Yeah, well, I think what Paul teaches in Romans 8, a text already uh, referenced, well, first of all, he says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So the, in, the indicative of what God has done for us in Christ through the cross is the fundamental reality. We, we have no condemnation because we belong to Jesus. But I think Paul also argues in Romans 8, those, those who are in Christ, those who are united with Christ, God, God has given them the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit, I think Romans 8, 4 is teaching us, the, the Spirit is given to us so that we fulfill the, the, the ordinance, he says, of the law. So that we, which, I, which I take to be fundamentally the commandment to love one another. Mm-hmm. And I, again, Paul's not talking about perfection, but, you know, in verses 5 through 8, verses 5 through 8 of chapter 8, that's not, that's not an exhortation. That's a that's a mm-hmm. fact. Mm-hmm. Right. Those are verse five. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Um, I, I don't. I think Paul's saying that's just the way it is. Now that doesn't mm-hmm. mean we don't need exhortations. Mm-hmm. Obviously, as Christians, there are places where we're told set your mind on the things of the Spirit. But that's not what he's saying in verse five. I think he's saying those who are in Christ, they're new. They set their minds now on the things of the Spirit. And as he says in Romans 8, 9, you're in the Spirit. Now, chapter 8, verse 10, there, there's still a tension, right? If Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. The Spirit is life because of righteousness. We, we are in our mortal bodies. As long as we're in our mortal bodies, we still struggle with sin. And, uh, mm. But the, the fundamental note, and here's where I bring in Galatians 5, verses 16 through 18. You know, Galatians 5.17 says the flesh uh, desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh mm-hmm. so that you can't do what you wish to. But I think in Galatians, and I think it's a different context, mm-hmm. Paul's fundamentally optimistic. So very close to Romans 8, Galatians 5 verse 16, he says, uh, what? What does he say? Walk walk by the spirit, right? Yes, yes. Galatians Galatians 5.18, uh, you're, you're led by the Spirit. So, so I think Paul's argument is we, we think very introspectively about ourselves often, and that's not bad. Yep. But, but I think what Paul sees in terms of the Christian life is his, his vision of the Christian life is fundamentally optimistic. Mm-hmm. We, yes, we sin every day, but what Paul sees is the newness we have in Christ. I would argue. And I think that's what's happening in Romans 8. Interesting. We're, we're new. We, we, live in a way, we live in a way that pleases God. Mm-hmm. Even, though, even though I think, I, I always want to add this, every day it's appropriate to pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins. Mm-hmm. Mm. So. so maybe if I could ask um, just a, a follow-up kind of on that, um, given that you mentioned uh, verses 5 through 8 being indicatives and not exhortations how would you uh counsel or um comfort somebody who maybe is struggling with assurance Mm, from these passages and and recognizing that saying i don't you know maybe they 
doubt they are a Christian because they recognize that I still have these desires that are not um, in accordance with what the spirit would want. Yeah. Yeah. That's, well, that's a great question. And it's, it's, it, it, it is, it has actually, it depends on the person in part and what's going on in their lives. But, mm. but just from these verses, I think one of the great comforts is there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mm. I mean, that's, that's a fact. So we are very tempted to derive our comfort fundamentally, foundationally, uh, because of our goodness. Mm-hmm. And Romans 8, 1 says, no, you are not, you are not right with God because of how you feel about your goodness. Mm. You, you are right with God because of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Amen. So there's, so there's no condemnation for you. So you're, so for a person really struggling with assurance, that that's, that's the, that's the key, isn't it? And again, you think of the end of Romans 8 again. You know, who, who's going to condemn you on mm-hmm. the day of judgment? I mean, Christ Jesus died for you. He, 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 he rose for you. He's at the right hand of God. He intercedes for you. Mm, so that, great. you know, I've sometimes explained uh, uh, assurance as a, as, a, as a big wheel uh, uh, tricycle, you know, and, the, and that big wheel in front is, is what we're talking about right now, what God has done for us in Christ. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think obedience uh, and uh, the witness of the Spirit are also there, but I think they're the, they're the back two wheels. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. If I, if I could just uh, uh, follow up on that, Doctor Schreiner, because I think it's a great question, Sean, about um, assurance. Uh, since Sean and I are both working pastorally with with people, and this comes up all the time, mm. I, I'm curious. What would your approach be? It obviously would be different than mine, but you are getting me to rethink things, Dr. Schreiner. <laughs> I have often gone to the person that struggled with uh, assurance and taken them to Romans 7 and walked them through Romans 7. And um, they have said, yep, that feels about right. I've often said, and I'm rethinking it, that I've always viewed Galatians 5.17 as sort of the cliff notes for Romans 7. You said something very different, that the contexts are different. Mm-hmm. I, I'd, I'd like to come back to you on, on, on that as well. But I have always gone to, and I'm not trying to haunt you with John Piper's uh, words to you so many years ago, but I've always asked the person, let me ask you, do you joyfully agree with God's law in, in, in the depth of your being? In other words, you see his glory, his commands, his demands on you as right and good and honoring they have almost always said yes i do and uh will uh i will at that point remind them when they were unbelievers they they didn't rejoice in god's word they didn't rejoice in god's command so uh, it's interesting to me i i'm if i'm hearing you right dr schreiner would you say you would do something similar but you would do it with the first several verses of romans 8 not romans 7 yeah yeah I mean, pastorally, I think, I think what you did is right. Uh, you know, I wouldn't get it from the same verses. At the end of the day, I think we're probably saying the same thing. Right. I, I, uh, I, I, I would go to Galatians five too. There's a struggle. Yes. I think Galatians five seventeen says that the, the flesh and the spirit they struggle against one another. I would say. That's exactly what Romans seven doesn't say, though. Okay. It says nothing, yeah. it, it says nothing about the spirit. Yeah. So mm. I, I think there's a difference between the two passages. But 
I, I, I'd want to say something about joyfully desiring to do the, 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 the will of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I don't think here Paul's speaking of pagans who no. lived licentious lives. He's thinking of pious Jews or, or God-fearing Gentiles who love God's law. Romans chapter 10, he says about the Jews uh, who are pursuing the law, chapter 9, mm-hmm. verse uh, 31, they're pursuing the law for righteousness. He says in Romans chapter 10, they have a zeal for God. Yes. So it's almost hard to see this in modern day America where people are very different, but there are still some people like that that are very moralistic. Yes. And mm-hmm. and I think that's what Paul's talking about there. These people, they uh, Paul, before he was a believer, what, what, what did Paul want to do? He didn't want to go out and sin every day. He wanted to please God by keeping the law. Yes. And, and so I think that there, there was a joyful agreement with those commands and a and an optimism that that in their own strength they could keep it and yes. do what the law said. So, yeah, pastorally, pastorally, I'd go to Romans eight, I'd go to Galatians five. You know, an, a passage I think is really interesting is, and I may have mentioned it in my article, I don't remember, but James James says we're justified by our works, mm-hmm. and the very next passage. He says, when he's talking about the tongue, he says, we all stumble in many ways. Mm-hmm. And the word stumble there, uh, the Greek word is patio, is picked up in chapter 10, verse, chapter 2, verse 10 of James, where, where James says, you know, if you keep the law, but you stumble in one thing, patio, you're guilty of it all. Mm-hmm. So clearly <laughs> patio there means sin when he says stumble. And, but I, mm. just listen to that verse. James includes himself. We all, not some, we all, all of us Christians, we all stumble, we all sin in a few ways, once in a while, in many ways. Mm-hmm. Mm. Uh, that's a very remarkable verse, mm. especially after James has just said that we're justified by our works, mm-hmm. mm. which I think is a great argument for, hey, James and Paul don't disagree. Furthermore, yes, there's a there's a profound danger of overemphasizing what James says there. Mm. You know, we we tend to come to a passage like James and we say, "Oh no, we're terrible, we're we're doomed." But but James can say we all stumble in many ways, mm-hmm. and then also say we're justified by works. So you know, pastorally, we want to. Uh, Comfort the afflicted, you know, this one, and afflict the comfortable. Mm-hmm. And um, and the the problem often is pastorally, the wrong people hear the wrong passages. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, yes. I mean, we we all need both, don't we? But oftentimes, that person, that person who's very sensitive and introspective, they hear something mm-hmm. like what I'm saying, and they say, "Oh, you, you you believe in perfectionism, and I'm not a Christian." And in fact, that's exactly what happened. After I wrote this article, mm-hmm. somebody wrote me an email and said, well, then I'm not a Christian for sure. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, mm. and I said, you misunderstood what I said. Hmm. You know, that's, that's not the point. That, that is a danger, isn't it? But there's a danger on every side. I, I know a person who grew up hearing that it was Christian experience, and uh, she told me, she said, you know, the way I've always heard Romans 7 is we're just utter and terrible failures. That's all we are as Christians. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whatever view you hold, 
there's a danger of not matching it with other other things Paul says. Yes. Mm. So yes, and if I can ask on that, this is a little bit off course, but I think related enough. I uh, every so often I have some people that that come to me. I've got a very dear woman friend in our church who does not like the few times I have said we're sinners saved by grace. That's not my most common phrase, but I've used it before. And um, she will say, we're, we're not sinners any longer. We're saints, which, of course, gets into the role of what is the flesh. Um, and that, I know that's a big subject, but since we've got you here, Dr. Schreiner, could you give us your, your sense? I, and I'm asking, what is the flesh, that active, sinful network of impulses, whatever we call it, that abides within the Christian? How, how would you define that? Well, first of all, I would say we're sinners saved by grace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we're saints too. Yeah, but but mm-hmm. I, I mean, I I I I still hold what Luther said, uh, "Simul justus." Yeah, we're justified. We're justified, and at the same time, we're sinners. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. it's too simple, and and I think it really denies the already not yet. Just to mm-hmm. say, and I think the already not yet is really important here. I think it's too simple just to say, oh, we're, we're saints and we're not sinners. Mm-hmm. I think that's reductionistic. The flesh, I think the flesh is the, who we are in Adam. It's the unregenerate person. It's, it, it, it's honestly, it's, it's, it's very hard to define, isn't it? It is. But it is. but is there, you know, some people want to say, well, it's just redemptive historical and it's not ontological. Mm-hmm. I I think there's an, I mean, how do you explain this? I don't want to get into two natures, but I think there's an ontological dimension to it. Yes. Because Paul speaks of, in Galatians 5, the flesh having desires. Right. I mean, desires, that's not just something external to you. That's something internal to who you are. Mm -hmm. So there's a, I think there's a great complexity, finally, to who we are. We're new. We're new, and yet, um, and yet we still battle the flesh, and that's not our, the fundamental reality of who we are, but it's still part of who we are. Yes, and and we we have to be aware of being simplistic, and and I think in discussions like this, I mean, it's helpful to think of something like the body and the soul. Mm-hmm. You know, we we have to avoid reductionistic uh, conclusions on how the body and soul interact. Mm-hmm. Right. So so some people are materialists because they can make no sense of the soul. Right. Others focus so much on the soul, they forget about the body. Right. Mm. There's a complex but mysterious interaction between the two. <laughs> and I think that I think that's true. Finally, of the flesh as well. Yes. This, the, the relationship between the spirit and the flesh, we experience that it's it's a bit ineffable, though, at the end of the day, it's a bit difficult to describe every dimension of it. And at least in my experience, people who really try to drive these kind of things in terms of sanctification, they end up making the flesh very external to us. Yes. And um, I think end up with really what I'd call Wesleyan, kind of Wesleyan views of sanctification that worry me. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So. That, that could lead potentially, would you say, Dr. Trotter, to perfectionism? Right, and and that's a danger in my view of Romans seven that I I want to avoid. Right, right. Like I'm a, sure the, there's a kind of perfectionism possible, and yeah, exactly. Uh, so how many people I've run across in my life who understand the flesh as being 
somehow not integral to who we are anymore. And then they have, uh, I think, very superficial views of the struggle we have with sin. Mm. Yes, yes. This is, uh, I know, not entirely what we, we plan to talk about, but this is helping me because I I have some, again, very well-meaning people in my life that that are pushing me hard on this, this um, we're saints, not sinners thing. And I, um, I have found normally when I hear them define flesh, they use certain terms like flesh patterns. Well, these were, um, these were habits that we developed living independent of trusting Christ. Not that there's no truth in that, but I do have to say, and I have mm. said, okay, I do believe there are some children that can come to know Christ at four years old, five years old, six years old. It's strange for me that a 65-year-old Christian is <laughs> sinning because they're still living out of patterns when they were three years old, independent of trusting Christ. And, and, and I think your idea there of, of highlighting uh, that the flesh has desires does speak of something intrinsic and, mm. and ontological. And I, even from, uh, from experience, Dr. Schreiner, I, I always say when I'm doing the right thing, and I'm apologizing to my wife, which is usually the right thing, um, <laughs> and I'm doing that, I always want to ask people, what is that stubborn, small, persistent, unyielding voice in my, the back of my head that's saying, don't do this. You, you were right. Your pride is being challenged. And mm. I will tell people that there is a sense in which there's something internal going on. Um, yeah. Even when I do believe the Lord is doing a genuine work through me, uh, there's a sense of battle. And I'm, if you notice, I'm trying to keep that out of Romans 7. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but, yeah. I, I think that's exactly right, uh, Greg. And, and uh, we see that, it, for example, you know, w- w- whether you're preaching or whether I'm teaching, whatever we do, our ego is not disconnected completely from what we're doing yes yes no matter no matter what we say i there there this is where i think luther is right and i think it fits the message of the new testament as a whole sin always touches everything we do Mm -hmm. and if people if people say you know what my motives were perfectly clear in what i did there was no touch of sin i think that's I think that's a, a great naivete. Yes, and and I th- honestly, that's dangerous. So yes. I'm yes. not arguing any of that. Sure, um, sure. You know, when when Paul, because I'm saying it's total defeat, but there's still, I think Paul's. You know, I like what Francis Schaeffer says: Christian life is marked by significant, observable uh, sanctification, significant mm-hmm. and observable and substantial sanctification, but not perfect. So yes. when you look look at our motives, um, you know, even even at our very best moments, uh, I just think of being up front, preaching and teaching. Yes, I can't, I cannot this interview. I cannot remove my my ego from it completely and say, oh, I have no touch of sin in this conversation. Right, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I may even think I don't, but. You know, something comes up, somebody sharply criticizes me or something, and I realize, oh, yeah, or insecurity arises, whatever. And I recognize, oh, yeah, my ego is involved. Yes. So, mm-hmm. More than I thought. So, Right. Yeah, it's amazing how criticism will do that. Dr. Schreiner, I just, um, we just finished a uh, 
series of fireside topics on this podcast back in January. And so I'm just curious, in the scope of being a hot topic in and how this this subject in particular matters in in viewing scripture, how would you kind of rank this? Mm. Um the the applicability of this scripture, you know, uh whether it's the way John Piper uses it or the whether or, or whether it's the way you use it. Obviously, uh, as believers, we want to be good biblical scholars and we want to get the text right and we want to get the context right in the text. But in terms of the significance of this, how would you kind of throw that in there, relate that to other topics? Well, I, I would say the topic is very important. Mm-hmm. I think kind of the things we just talked about. However, mm-hmm. since someone like Piper and me can explain the passage different ways and yet have substantially the same view of the Christian life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I take it, I take it your, our particular interpretation of this passage could be overrated. So, you know, if I go to a church and I hear a pastor preach this as Christian, first of all, that doesn't bother me at all. Mm-hmm. Secondly, I think they always say lots of true things, mm-hmm. and I'm edified by that. And I don't think the differences are very great between us. Mm. I'm, I'm, I'm actually more worried if someone would use this in a perfectionistic way. Yeah. Now, I think I think that strain. I mean, I think I think the Christian view or the perfectionistic view are both strain from from what Paul said. But I, I don't want to give it too much weight since. I think there can be disagreements on the particular text and substantial agreements on the overall vision of our view of sanctification. Mm, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yes. Which, of course, but sanctification is very important. I mean, that's a huge and important topic. Sure. Sure. So we, this might be overpressing it, but, but to Nathan's question, w- would you say, Dr. Schreiner, that it's – I've often said, you know, I've heard so many people that are really wonderful Christians that have misused the – Maybe the most misused <laughs> New Testament verse, you know, where they show up to a prayer meeting. Well, there were only two of us, but just like Jesus said, wherever two or three are gathered, you're there I am. And I, I don't want to police people uh, and word police them. I tell myself sometimes I need to look for an opportunity to uh, teach that passage to them a little better so they understand what's going on in the role of, you know, church discipline, etc. The, the two or three likely being the witnesses. Um but I, I've often said, you know, what they're saying is right. Jesus is there. Uh, <laughs> you know I mean, of course, I've often said, but hey, is he there if, if you're the only one that shows up? Of course. So uh, even, even if you're the only one, he's, he's there. But I've often said I don't panic because I think they've gotten the, their interpretation wrong. But the, it has not in that particular case led to heresy or something that would be damnable in terms of their belief system is this sort of on par with that yeah i think so and i and i think what you say is right i mean in terms of applic i mean applications of text significance of text to our lives they're multiple even in matthew 18 there's a sense in which it depends on how you apply it but if you don't drive it too far it's i think it's perfectly fine it, it it becomes you know, it becomes dangerous if people use it in bizarre ways. Like they say, you know, two or three of us got together and we decided, Greg, you ought to be fired or something, you know, <laughs> right, or, or right. whatever, whatever it is. But if, but if it's 
relatively straightforward and you know the and, and you're right god god's presence is among them and and so i think i think people kind of apply a secondary idea and a text that's in a way that's that's fine and i think yeah i don't worry about that at all yes so, yes hmm. Thank you. um yeah well we're gonna um get to the point of wrapping up soon but i know sean has one more question he wants to ask real quick so sean. sure yeah this was this is great i just wanted to kind of uh to circle a little bit back to Romans eight, just in talking about uh, assuring Christians and people that do recognize that Romans seven may uh, describe some people's Christian life, regardless of what, what view we look at. Um, I I went to a men's retreat a few years ago and I I think kind of the theme for the whole weekend was Romans eight one. There's no, now no condemnation. Um, I assume you've probably preached on that text. Would you, could you like share with us how you would, um, like what point you would make if that was a sermon you're preaching mm. just the one verse there good question well um yeah i have preached on that text honestly i forgot exactly how i did it. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a long time ago but i i think i'd say some of the things i said earlier about the fundamental mm. uh basis of our assurances that we're united with jesus christ crucified and risen Mm-hmm. So I, I think that that is foundational. I do, and maybe I'm taking this in a direction you don't want me to take this in, Sean, but I would want to say, as you keep reading in Romans 8, he says, those who are led by the Spirit, they're the sons of God. Mm. So I think I think Paul's saying there, look, how do you know? I don't think he's talking about specific guidance particularly there, like, you know, who should I marry? But I think he's saying those who live lives that are pleasing to God, how do you know who God's children are? Well, they they live in a new way. Right. So our assurance is fundamentally due to our union with Christ. But for Paul, that assurance manifests itself in a new kind of life. Mm. Yes. And being led by the Spirit of God. And that's why I think he's, he says you have not received uh, – a spirit of slavery again, resulting in fear, fear of punishment, because because you're new. So everybody who's incorporated into Christ Jesus is also transformed. Mm. Then we immediately have to say, given our current context, we're not talking about perfection. Right. right. We're, talking, we're talking about a new direction. We're talking about new desires. Yes. And so forth and so on. Yes, I like that. And it, you sound very Piper-like there, Doctor Schreiner. Uh, well, I, well, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I'm sure I use many phrases from John. I heard him preach 11 years. Yes, you yes. Know, you know. No, I always love his uh, what new taste buds, which is what I think of. You know, there are new tastes, and uh, I like the idea of you said new direction, new trajectory. Uh, just, just to say, I, I know, Nathan, we're just about to wrap up. We want to be mindful of time. Just I wanted to, to share. Um, I'm not just saying this to, to butter you up, Dr. Schreiner. I am really... And I'm thankful. I'm not in Romans right now. I'm actually in Second Peter. Thank you so much for your commentary there, by the way. Um, <laughs> we are uh, in the middle of four messages in Second Peter 2. Uh, and I wonder, when, when you've commented on that section, um, <laughs> preaching on that section right now, I am amazed that my church keeps showing up on Sunday. Because these are some <laughs> of the hardest texts. Um, I mean, hard-hitting expose on the profile of false teachers, et cetera. But that, that wasn't my main point. But your commentary has been very, very helpful. Oh, I, thank um, you. Uh, yes, yes, very much. And I, I wanted to say um, just to any other pastors out there, teachers, youth pastors, I know we have a lot that listen in, 
I I want to tell you some things that just stand out to me that I'm going to go back and, and rethink about that I never, even though I've read the commentaries before, given full thought. Uh, Romans 7, 7 through 25, no reference to the Holy Spirit. I, I do think that's significant. Hmm. Um, I am thinking whether or not the view is true or not that I have preached, I have imported my understanding of the Holy Spirit's activity in a text that quite frankly, and I've been looking at it all night in this interview, does not mention the Holy Spirit um, until we get into chapter 8. So that's just something I, I wanted to say is staying with me, Dr. Schreiner, as well as your very helpful comment that ch- uh, chapter 7, verse 5, I believe all commentators agree, would be the description of the unbeliever. Mm-hmm. Chapter 7, verse 6 would be the description of the believer so again, for if, just anybody listening in, this is where I'm going to take this. I'm going to spend some time testing that theory that what if chapter 7, verse 7 through 25 was the fuller exposition of chapter 7, verse 5, and what if Romans 8, is it 1 through 13, Dr. Schreiner, 17? I, I can't remember the exact Yeah, uh, one. Through, you know, people divide it in different places, but 1 through 17 is a good break. Yeah. Yes, yes, 1 through yeah. 17. Is that indeed the exposition? of Romans 7, verse 6. I'm looking at it, and it makes an awful lot of sense. So again, I want to let people know there may be a retraction coming at some point, but... (laughs) (laughs) Now, now did you lead with the Second Peter thing just to guard yourself from being accused of being a false teacher? Yeah. Is that why why you did that? (laughs) I don't want to be told I've gone the way of Balaam. (laughs) That is for sure. Good question, Sean. But I I felt like you were going to say something in there, Dr. Schreiner. I didn't want to cut you off. Well, I just want to say again, uh, I I think those two points are good. And I just want to say one more time that I think 14 through 25 also explains with the with the four or Greek, the gar, it explains verse 13 why we die. Yes. Yes. So that's I think that's very significant, too. What's. He in verses uh, seven through twelve answer the question posed there, and verses fourteen through twenty-five answer the question in verse thirteen. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Doctor. This has been so great. Thank you once again, Doctor Schreiner, for coming on and joining us. Um, again, it's it's been excellent. We enjoyed you last time. Enjoyed you so much this time, and hopefully, we can have you on again sometime in the future as well. So. Well, really appreciate it. Thank you. Greg, Nathan, and Sean, I, I, I truly enjoyed it, and uh, it, it was a lot of fun. So I'd like to do it again as well. Wonderful. Excellent. Wonderful. We're going to go ahead and sign off. Gentlemen, we just rocked the Casper. Rocked it. These go to 11.